0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we'll read through the Ten Commandments once again. In following the reading of Scripture, we will sing together the Gloria Patri printed in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism continues to encourage us on how we might show gratitude to God for the great deliverance he has done for us in delivering us from our sin and misery. And we've been working our way through the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and come to the conclusion of that today Along with some other summary questions, we're not done giving thanks to God because uh, beginning in the next uh, section, the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day forty-five, we'll be talking about prayer and how we show our gratitude to God in our lives of prayer. But we come to these uh, this the end of these ten commandments, and remember the first commandment is the law of loyalty. The second commandment is the law of worship. The third commandment is the law of reverence. The fourth commandment is the law of rest. The fifth commandment is the law of authority. The sixth commandment is the law of life. The seventh commandment is the law of purity. The eighth commandment is the law of property. The ninth commandment is the law of the tongue. And the tenth commandment Today is the law of the heart. Uh, What is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. One of the elements of uniqueness about this tenth, Tenth Commandment is that it particularly focuses on the heart attitude and the motivation that lies behind disobedience, uh, the wrong ideas that often precede wrong actions. Now, we've talked about that along with, all the, with the other commandments along the way, that behind each of these commandments, there's a heart attitude, a motivation, a thought process that is, lies behind disobedience to the different commands. But in a sense, this commandment summarizes, particularly related to the commandments of the love of our neighbor, it summarizes the attitude that is behind the violations of those. For example, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's life, therefore, you shall not kill. You shall not covet your neighbor's property, his house. Therefore, you shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Therefore, you shall not commit adultery. And you shall not covet your neighbor's reputation. Therefore, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So you see, coveting, in a sense... Lies at the root of all of the commandments and our disobedience, particularly to these commands uh, of love to our neighbor. Well, how would you define coveting? Um, A desire? Well, it needs to be stronger than that. An insatiable desire, an unlawful desire, an inordinate desire. It's not wrong to desire good things. In fact, sometimes you'll have a preacher or somebody say, well, I covet your prayers. Well, that means they desire you to be praying for them. It's not an ungodly thing that they're asking. But the word covet, especially in this context, we're thinking of something that's inordinate, um, insatiable. It's a wrong kind of desire. And even the pagans understood the, the problem with coveting, a desire that was uncontrollable. Aesop had a little story. He said there was an envious and covetous man, and he was granted by Zeus that any wish that he could have any wish on the condition that his neighbor would get twice as much. And the man, being covetous and envious, was unable to bear the thought of his neighbor being prosperous. And so he asked to lose one eye well that's the even even the pagans understand the dilemma and and the the terrible nature of of coveting in a wrong sense of desiring wealth desiring wealth in a wrong way makes you miserable and getting it doesn't make you happy and coveting is leading us along a path that's not a constructive path. And the help of the Christian outlook, the biblical outlook on on this, is that it's not wrong to have the good things God gives us, which he gives us to enjoy. God doesn't delight in our misery. He pours out abundantly upon us the wonderful things and it's not a wrong for us to enjoy those things for each, but it's wrong for us to desire them in a wrong way uh, to make them the controlling motivation of our life and of our hearts uh, having much of the worldly plenty will not stop us from coveting <clears throat> and coveting won't be satisfied in us getting more uh, we have the problem that with, that's within our hearts, the sinful nature which we have that goes with us. Uh, but there's two things I want to reflect on with you as we think about coveting. What is the danger of coveting? In other words, what are the negative consequences to us? <clears throat> and then how is it that we can conquer coveting? So there are three particular dangers or consequences The first is that coveting chokes our spiritual desires. In uh, Matthew 13, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. He talks about the sower going out to sow and he scatters the seed in various soils. And one of the soils that he scatters the seed on is the soil that's full of thorns. And Jesus says that seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke it, making it unfruitful. Uh, coveting chokes out the true spiritual desires that would make us fruitful for the Lord. And we don't experience the blessings that God really has for us. A second Negative consequences or dangerous aspect of the coveting, it's the root of evil. We remember Paul's statement in First Corinthians 1 Timothy 6, "For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not money that's the root of evil, it's the love of money that's the root of evil. And it leads people to pierce themselves with many griefs because they have an insatiable desire for it. They want it more than anything else, and so it brings evil into their lives. And a third consequence or danger is that it shuts us out of heaven. When we love this world more than we love God... Uh, It has very serious consequences. Paul wrote, No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So if we find our inheritance completely in this world, then we have no inheritance with God in glory. Or as John would warn us in 1 John, Love not the world, neither anything in the world, for, the love, for anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we have the, the terrible consequences if we're in love only with this world. If that's where our focus is, then we lose our connection with God. And we have no place in his kingdom. And so coveting is a very terrible thing. To have as a part of our lives, which is why God commands you not to have it. Well, how is it that we can conquer coveting? Well, I'm going to refer you to several things I mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about the Eighth Commandment. And the first is you need to cultivate contentment. So let me take you again to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 and following. If we would avoid the path of coveting, we need to be content. So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So you have the encouragement again to cultivate contentment. Paul learned the secret of contentment, how he could either have a lot of things or he could have very little of things, but in either case, he could be content. And the secret of contentment was that he could do that through Christ who gives him strength. The focus of your attention and mind needs to be Christ. Uh, when we get our eyes on the things of this world and get them off of Christ, then we become distracted. And we get caught up in things that lure us away. But when we keep our focus on Christ and we realize that everything I need, I have in him, then whether we have a lot of things or whether we have a few things, we have everything because we have Christ. Christ has to be the center place of our thinking, and He's he is the secret of contentment. To have Christ's first poor, first place in our hearts and our lives. The second thing you can do to develop, uh, to fight being covetous is to remember and rely on God's providence. And when we talked about the Eighth Commandment, we talked about uh, Matthew 6 and how Jesus had said to them, look at the birds of the air, they don't sow or reap or store away in barns, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And you and I have to keep our focus on the providence of God. Will he care for you? And if you doubt that, you are going to be led away into coveting. Desiring what other people have. Desiring something of this world. Uh, You will be caught up in the things of this world instead of the things of God. Along with that encouragement, that command of Christ, he he tells us where should we put our energies. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So instead of having our focus and attention on the things of this world, if we have our focus and attention on on Christ's kingdom, then whatever we have of this world will be enough and God will provide those with us. Provide us grace with them. So that's three ideas. Cultivate contentment. Uh, remember God's providence and have faith in that. Put your energies into seeking God's kingdom. And then the fourth thing is an idea of conquering, coveting is to remember again the transient nature of the things we have in this world. The, thing, the things in this world simply do not last. The inheritance that God has laid up for you can neither spoil, fade, or be stolen. But everything we have in this world can spoil, fade, and be stolen. And God's reminder to us is not to focus on the things of this world that will fade, but on the inheritance we have with him, which will not spoil, fade, and will be preserved in heaven for you who are preserved by him. Moses, uh, we're told in, Matt, in Hebrews 11, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, pres- the pleasures of sin for a season, for a short time. Uh, Not just the pleasures of sin, but the pleasures of this world are a short time. I came across a psalm this week that I want to read for you now and have you turn there that really reflects on this truth. Turn to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. And here, this psalmist uh, reflects on the Temporary nature of, of this world. So, Psalm 49, beginning at verse 1 Hear this, all you peoples, listen, all you who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom, the utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb, with the harp I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come? When wicked, wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their riches, their great riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish. And they leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave. And death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself, Selah. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though he lived, he, uh, though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. There's no reason for us to covet, because even if we gain it, we can't keep it. It's not ours forever. It would only be ours temporarily. And so you and I need to cultivate contentment, trust God's providence, pursue God's kingdom, and remember the benefits of this life are temporary. So keep our eyes on something permanent. So that's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet This the the. Catechism brings us to some summary questions as we think about the law. In a sense, it brings us back to where we started. <clears throat> when we started looking at the Ten Commandments, I pointed out to you how there is nothing we can do to gain God's favor or to keep God's favor. It's all a gift of grace, it's all a gift of mercy. So the Catechism comes back to the question well, what is the role of the law in our lives? What is its purpose? And it gets us into thinking about that by asking the question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Now, you don't need a catechism answer to tell you the answer to that. You know the answer to that. Is there any man perfectly able to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is no. It's been a very sad thing that at different times in the church's history, and even in our own day, there are those... Uh, professing Christians who think they can become perfect. They can reach a state of perfection. And, of course, when they fall on their faces, it's tremendously depressing to them. You and I are going to be struggling with that, um, with sin, the rest of our lives. The um, Heidelberg Catechism answer in 114, can you keep these perfectly? No, even the holiest men while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live, not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Uh, the shorter, shorter Catechism has a similar answer to, is a man able to keep the, perfectly keep the commandments of God? No man is able, either of himself or by any grace received in this life, perfectly to keep the commandments of God but daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. If any man, John says, claims to be without sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. If any man claims he has not sin, he makes God to be a liar. And you and I are going to wrestle with sin, even though we're Christians, even though we know the Lord, we're going to wrestle with indwelling sin the rest of our lives. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. And I think this is in part what Paul is wrestling with in Romans chapter 7. When he says, uh, what the law, uh, excuse me, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. He knows he's a Christian, he's been regenerated. But in his sinful nature, there dwell, dwells no good thing. And he's going to wrestle with that. He says... For I have the desire to do what is good, which only a Christian could have, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You and I are going to struggle with sin all our days. What hope do we have? Well, we have hope in the answer to another question, and that is, is anybody able to keep the law perfectly? And the answer is yes. One. One could. Christ could. Christ did. He kept the law perfectly. He's holy, harmless, and undefiled, separated from sinners. What the law was powerless to do, Paul says, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son. And the son of God came so that he might pay the penalty for our sins, our violations of the law, and that he might obey God's law in our place and we might receive righteousness from him. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our hope and our help in the face of the law of God is Christ. That he not only paid the penalty for our sin, he was righteous on our behalf. We're justified by grace through faith so that, as Paul says in Romans 6, we might not surrender our members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness, but we might Surrender the members of our body as instruments of service to God. So we can't keep the law. So why did God give us the law? What good is the law for us? What purpose did He have in giving us a law that we can't keep? And that's a great question. And the Heidelberg Catechism has a wonderful answer. It's question answer one fifteen. There are three things that this. Answer tells us why did God give you and me the law? Very importantly, the first is that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. God gave the law to you and to me so that we might understand in no uncertain terms uh, our sinful nature, that we might realize and be gripped with the reality. Of the wretchedness of our sin. It's one of those things that people tend to minimize. Well, everybody does something wrong. But it's far worse than that. We violated the character of our holy God. And the law was given so that we would be confronted with that. And come to understand that clearly. Clearly. Secondly, it was given that thus uh, that, that that and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. A second use of the law is that it's to drive us to Christ. We need to know our need, and we need to be driven to the remedy of our need, which is the work of a person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given to force you to Him to show you there's no other way. He is the only way. And then thirdly, likewise, that we may constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. The third purpose of the law, the reason it was given to us, is so that we would be Driven to desire to pursue holiness. That we might pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, that we would live in conformity to the law, and uh, that our life would conform to the image of God, to the image of Christ. The law was designed to give us these three things, the recognition of our sinfulness, a motivation to be driven to Christ and a desire to pursue holiness in the fear of God. And just to give you one other parallel uh, catechism answer, it's in a larger catechism. It's asking essentially the same question why did God give us this law? He says, although they are regenerate, why did God give the law to the regenerate? Although they are regenerate and believe in Christ, they are delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. Uh, So as thereby they they are neither justified nor condemned. In other words, you're delivered from the law in Christ, you're not justified by the law, and you're no longer condemned by the law. Yet besides the general uses thereof common to all men, it's of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness, to express the same in their greater care, to conform themselves thereunto as the rule to their obedience." God gave us the law for good reasons. It's a way to show our thankfulness to God. And the good work of the law may it do its work in us, convicting us of sin, driving us to Christ, and motivating us to pursue holiness in the fear of God so that God would be glorified in in our lives uh, from start to finish. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you abundantly for the work of grace that we come to know through Christ, for the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your law, your moral law, the Ten Commandments. It confronts us with areas that we need to be careful in. It confronts us with the attitudes of our hearts that lie behind our violation of these commands. We thank you, Lord, for convicting us of sin. We thank you, Father, for the, the, the remedy that's found in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the help it gives us in pursuing a, a life of obedience and holiness by your grace. May you be glorified in us uh, because of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.